you would please turn in your Bibles. Chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. We're looking at the end of this chapter, verses 6 through 15. 6 through 15. 9, 6 through 15. If you would please follow with the reading of God's word. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, and he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, we will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Father, what an awesome text. Lord, please teach us. Father, I beg you this day, as the ears hear this word, that Father, no one walks out of here deceived. Father, no one walks out of here playing a game. Father, I pray for those who know you, who love you, who adore you. Father, they will be encouraged by these words. Father, I pray for those who speak but do not do. Father, today, you bring them to reality. Father, I pray for all of us that our faith may grow. And that, Father, we will watch the hand of an awesome God rock our universe. Thank you, my King. The amazing things you do. And yet, Father, you're not done. Father, we with great eagerness anticipate what you shall accomplish. In Christ's name, amen. I call this section uh, God's Prosperity. How, how do we prosper? I, you know, I, I've, I've read a lot on this text. Kind of surprised that actually some of the authors, uh, they have missed this. Um, this text has... Spiritual implications to it, but he is definitely talking about temporal gain. Um, how how do I gain money? And, and and I watch people they 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 want to do some kind of theological yoga to try to get around this thing, and uh, you can't. I mean, the only way that I know for sure that you can get around this text is don't read it. 
I mean, it's that simple because he's talking about an offering going to the Jerusalem church. And he's not trying to collect spiritual blessings to take to Jerusalem. Uh, The Jerusalem church, go check out their leadership. Uh, I mean, really? Uh, I mean, you got the uh, 11 original disciples hanging out there. They need blessings of what? Peter and John walk past people and their shadows are healing people. Yeah, they, they, they need some help. <laughs> I mean, you know, he needs a spiritual blessing. Yeah, I, I guess. But I, I watch people try to do this and, and I try to make it as simple as possible. Paul does a phenomenal job there. The principle for God's prosperity is very, very simple. Okay. Verse six. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Okay, that's a self-evident truth. And you can all say, yeah, you're right. Okay, that's why when I I listen to get-rich-quick schemes, it's a scheme. I I don't care. I I, I got an article from a guy... Uh, I belong to an organization called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association. And uh, they're, they're, they're national and they're running around. Uh, it's whatever. And um, they're talking about these churches that are having gun raffles. In, uh you know, in uh, Kentucky and Connecticut and all these other things. And you can get all of these guns and you buy raffle tickets and they'll give you a Smith & Wesson or an AR or something like that. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> what? I don't get it. <laughs> I, I don't that don't make sense to me. A gun raffle. OK, I, I mean, whatever, you know, but we're raising money. And I thought, you know what? That, that's not what we're really here for. Okay, listen, I'm not against guns. I have, I'm a Second Amendment guy. I believe that. I own guns. But I... <laughs> you know what? I'm convinced of this. There are no guns in heaven. <laughs> okay? You're not taking it with you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care how much you like it. It ain't going with you. <laughs> so... Um, so it's kind of silly at times, I, I think, that we get caught up in this. But I, I see this sowing as, as, as what we do. What are we investing in? Okay. What are you investing in? Verse 7 says that a person who is a cheerful giver has a special affection from God. Okay. A person who doesn't give grudgingly who does not give under compulsion. I mean, you know, the you guys heard him, the preacher who just makes you feel so guilty that you I just got to give some more. Okay, that's under compulsion. Um, my responsibility to that is to tell you, here's what the need is, and I walk away from it. It is that simple. All right, so... When I see this God's prosperity, I think there is a special love of God of a cheerful giver. Okay, who's doing what he's purposed in his heart? Okay, the love of God has been poured in our hearts. All right, because of that love, we understand that what we have here is temporal and I don't need it. Okay, he will provide. The psalmist tells me that if you walk in my righteousness, you shall never hunger or thirst. 
Sounds like a good promise. Malachi says testing. All right. It's, it's that simple and it's, and it's throughout scripture. But the second thing that we've seen is that there is a generosity that comes from God in verses eight through the first part of 11. All right. Because it is God who is able to make all grace abound. When I read that, that just gives me a, a it makes my brain hurt. It's sort of like eating a big old bowl of ice cream too fast. Okay. The God of infinite grace will make grace abound. Now, it makes my eyes water. Okay, but that's what he's going to do. And how does he do that? So you will always have all sufficiency in everything and an abundance for every good deed. Okay, you're going to have an abundance as long as you continue to do the deeds of God. That's the good deeds. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God. All right. If I reach out, here's a need. I reach out. I do that need. He will replace it and he will multiply it. Why? So I can do more. So I can do more. All right. Which brings us to what we're looking at to the glory of God. 11b through 13. Okay. The second part of 11 says why it will produce through us. Okay. Specifically context here. He, Paul's talking about his ministry of this collection for the Jerusalem saints. God had laid on their hearts this need. And let's be realistic. A church in Jerusalem was in serious need. All right. So they have this need and he's laid it on their hearts. And when you meet that need, what happens? It produces thanksgiving to be careful. I know a lot of people who want to tell you what I did for God so they get the thanks. And the thanks should be going to God. Because most of the time right now, if you give and you help, who gets thanked? You do. And yet it is by the grace of God in his abundance of his grace that he has lavished upon each and every one of us that we are a tool to be used so that he receives the thanksgiving. Who gets the glory? Too many in the church today wants the glory. Okay, now I want to move into the second part of this. 12 to 13. But I've, I've got to lay down a little foundation that I, I need you to be aware of. Some of you went through 1 Corinthians with me, right? Let's be realistic. If you read 1 Corinthians just on a cursory reading, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Are this even a church? Okay, listen, I have been in church long enough to know that you got some knuckleheads in the church. Okay, Uh, we will call them individual knuckleheads that do things you're like, oh, geez. All right. But you very seldom will run into a whole church. I have been around the church long enough to know that very seldom do you find a church full of people that were acting the way the Corinthians were. 
But you also have to understand that at the age that this is written, that the Jews were very suspicious of any Gentiles being saved. You got to understand that. Listen, you don't believe me? Paul wrote to the Galatians and said he confronted Peter. Peter. Because he would be buddy buddies with the Gentiles until Jews showed up. And then he wouldn't be friendly with the Gentiles anymore. Why? I Remember he had the vision at Joppa? Okay. What was that? That was dietary laws. But then if you read Acts 11, he goes and he talks to a guy named Cornelius. And he shares Jesus with Cornelius. He preaches him the gospel and to Cornelius' household. And they all believed The whole household of Gentiles believed. And he said that the spirit came upon him and he went back to Jerusalem. They believed the same gospel that the Jews were believing in Jerusalem. He goes back and he tells the Jews that the Gentiles have received the same gospel. The Gentiles have received the same salvation. The Gentiles have received the same Holy Spirit. And it freaked them out. Because it was tough for a Jew to swallow that. In Acts chapter 15, you see Paul and Barnabas. They come out of Antioch, Syria. They come back down into Jerusalem. And what is their report to the Jerusalem council? That Gentiles are being saved. Okay? They are with us. They are to be embraced by us. It freaked Paul out so much that when he wrote to the Ephesians, he says the wall between the Jew and the Gentile has been torn down. We are one new flesh. We are one body. We are one man. We are one kingdom. Jew and Gentile. And I get that it puts a little burn in my saddle today when I hear a Jewish church tell me that we are a messianic congregation. You know what? We are a messianic congregation. We better be a messianic congregation or we're all in trouble. Okay, there's no difference between the Jew and Gentile. If you go look at the writing of the New Testament, you had Jew, Gentile, and believers. All right, there, that's the only three differences. It has been torn down. It was hard for Jewish believers to think that the chosen of God would include Gentiles. Do you know what was worse than a Gentile? Samaritan. You know what those were? That was a Jew that married a Gentile and produced a non-pure child. Okay, that was worse than a Gentile. So how in the world could the church have Jew and Gentile together? You know what? The Jews, they fight over that today. Why do the Arabs hate the Jews? Because the Jews believe they are God's chosen people. Okay? You know what a Palestinian is? It's a Jew of the line of Esau. Who gave up their birthright for a bowl of soup. What are they fighting over right now? Birthright? You know what? Nothing's changed, people. Well, we got more money and better weapons. (laughs) But other than that, nothing's changed. 
They still fight over God's kingdom. But now you have this thing called the church. The ecclesia. The called out ones. The set apart ones. The church. And it would seem, knowing that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and John had to all keep going back and telling the Jews in Jerusalem that Gentiles are being saved. And it would seem that the Jerusalem church was struggling with that. Okay, now then, add Corinth to the mix. Okay, the Jews are struggling with whether a Gentile can be saved. Then you have this first church of Corinth. And let me describe it in one term. Nasty. Okay? Um, the Jewish believers, how could they be saved? You read it. Just read it cursory. And say, the only reason I know that they were saved is says, you lack nothing. That's what Paul said. Listen, the... Global church at the time of the writing of the Corinthians wasn't like we didn't know what everybody else was doing. Okay? The church in Thessalonica, all of Christendom had heard how God had changed the hearts of the Thessalonians. All of Christendom? It was their TV show. All right? Listen. If you just take 1 Corinthians and go through and list the sins of the congregation, they were suing each other. It wasn't they were suing the church of Rome. They were suing each other in Corinth. Church members. They had an immorality in the church where a man had taken his father's wife. A man had taken his stepmother and it was honored in the church. They had pride problems. They had factions. Of course, if you've got pride, you've got factions. They had intellectual ascension problems. They had people who believed that it was spiritual if you took a harlot. They had drunkenness at the Lord's table. This is in the church, people. They had confusion over the resurrection. How in the world can you be confused over the resurrection? In the name of tongues, people were standing up during the worship service cursing Christ. To say it was chaotic would be an understatement. He said that even the lost people would come in and see this and think you're crazy. So, many of the Jewish believers, what would be their conclusion? The same as you and I. That ain't no church. I don't know what it is, but I know what it ain't. Remember, there's four letters been written to these people. What you have in 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter. So the word was out on the prayer chain. Were the Corinthians real? Is that a true church? I mean, they embrace every false teacher that comes walking in and says, I'm speaking for God. 
Wait a minute, that sounds like church in America, doesn't it? Never mind. <laughs> Look at what they've done to Paul. Listen, and, and even here, this Second Corinthians, I get encouragement from this letter because of chapter 7 and some of the stuff in this text. Okay, but it, it, even the Apostle Paul, after the restoration of the relationship between the Corinthian church and Paul, in chapter 13, verse 5, what does he say? Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you know if you're genuine? Okay, I'll roll that one to you guys. Do you know if you are genuine? I get into trouble asking that question. People get really cranky. I say, you don't look saved. You don't smell saved. You don't walk like you're saved. I'm thinking. You've deceived yourself. Okay, now that always goes over well. But he told the Corinthians, All right, do you know if you're genuine or not? See, the question is being asked by the Gentiles, was this Gentile church real? Okay, so now we go back to our text, and I want you to keep that in mind, that thinking on... Were the Jewish believers really believed? See, the Jewish believers were struggling with the fact Gentiles were in the church. Okay? Then you say, look at Corinth. That's truly a godly example of what? Verse 12 of 9. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is overflowing through the many thanksgivings to God. Then verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, we will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. Okay, important section, people. Very, very important. I just asked you a question. Examine yourself. Okay, examine yourself. Okay, I don't need you to sit and give me a dispensation on... Ecclesiology, soteriology. I don't need that. Okay? Paul sees a great value in the Corinthian contribution to the Jewish saints. You know what he sees? It validates their salvation. Did you hear what I said? It validates their salvation. How do you get that out of here? I thought you would never ask. Let me explain it to you. Because he's getting to the heart. First he says, you are not just meeting the needs, you're creating glory to God. Okay? Then verse 13 he says, and this proof is given by this ministry. This ministry is speaking of the offering for the Jerusalem church. But it also does what? It glorif- it, they will glorify God. Okay, who is they there? The Jerusalem saints. Who's going to receive this offering? Alright? They will glorify God for what? Your obedience to what? Your confession of the gospel of Christ. Alright? Alright? Now, let me show you this. 
Verse 12. For the ministry of this service. Okay, the word ministry there. And in verse 13, ministry. That's the root word we get deacon from. Humble servant. Okay, but you see the word service? All right. Okay, most people say, well, isn't that like service, service? Nope. It's not. The word service there, you see the ministry of this service, is the word we get liturgy from. What? I told you he's going to eat this up. Okay, it is a priestly word. It is the view of this collection as a spiritual, as a religious, as a priestly effort. You ever thought about that? That my giving... Is a religious effort? Is a spiritual effort? It literally is meaning what he's saying here is that this offering is being lifted up and offered to God to bring him glory. That's the essence of the text. For this ministry of this offering to lift up glory to God. Could be a good translation for that if you want to take the word liturgy and make it bigger. So this offering is bringing thanks to God. It has spiritual implications because it is bringing glory to God, but it is also supplying the needs of the saints. Okay, now I I want to show you this, this thing here. Is pregnant with truth. <laughs> it took me a while. It's heavy with child. All right. Is not only fully supplying. Okay, you see the word fully supplying? It's one word in the Greek. It's a verb. All right. Well, yay, huh? I can't pronounce it. It doesn't have enough vowels. But I can show you something cool about it. In the Greek language, if I want to intensify the action... Okay, I want to intensify the action. I put a preposition on the front of the verb. Okay, so here you and I would call it a a prefix. Okay, here this word has the prefix, ana, a n a, ana. Okay, that's why you see the word fully. All right. It intensifies. It means really supply. All right? But it's got a second prefix. Pas. Pasana. Okay? You know what that means? It's doubly intensified. So when you read this, now I want you to grab this. When you read that, not only fully supplies the needs of the saints. Do you know what he's saying here? With the Corinthian offer, there are no needs for the saints in Jerusalem. From the Corinthian offering. No needs for the saints in Jerusalem. The need in Jerusalem, it was staggering. You're looking at a church in the tens of thousands. Okay? Believers in Jerusalem. 
who many of them were pilgrims. And when they came to Christ, guess what? They ain't going back. Why would I go back to Spain? There wasn't no first Spanish church. Can't go back to Creed. There ain't no church there. There wasn't a church in Rome. The only church that existed on the planet Earth was where? Jerusalem. And I'm Peter. You, you gotta be looking at the guy and say, Peter, shut up. I mean, every time he goes out and preaches, you get 3,000 people. He goes out and preaches again, you get 5,000 people. Shut up, Peter. We got 10,000 member church and nobody got a job. They don't have a place to live. They don't have no food. And they love us. That's why you see people who had property, what were they doing? Selling it and laying it at the feet of the apostles. Why? Room service. But it gets worse than that. Remember Jesus on the cross? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know what? Anytime I read what Jesus says, I look and say, did it happen? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Okay, this is right after the crucifixion and the resurrection. All right, 6, 7. There's a statement that lays in there that is just amazing because it shows to me that God is fulfilling what Jesus said. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You know what it says? Many, large numbers of the priest were saved. What do you suppose they're going to do for a living? Huh? I believe Jesus and I am unemployed. All right, and these guys are biblical scholars. So they're going to just keep doing what Peter's doing. So you've got a church that's going to keep growing people that don't have a job, nor do they even have an ability to get a job in Jerusalem. So when you see here that the Corinthians fully met the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, do you realize how many dollars they were taking to Jerusalem? Because they were going to meet the clothing need, the shelter need, and the food needs for how many people? They had no way to make a living in Jerusalem. And the saints there were greatly in need. And they were in need of the basics. Just the basics. They needed food. They needed money. They needed clothing. They needed shelter. There was a severe problem. And you're looking at tens of thousands of people. And the Corinthian offering would fully meet that need. Double intensified verb. You know what that means? It's done. So if the gift from the Corinth could fully supply the needs of the saints, you're talking a huge sum of money. That's why there was this task force that was going to take it to Jerusalem. Well, you needed that just to carry it. It wasn't like they were going down with MasterCard. You know, well, we've got a bunch of checks here. 
Corinth had some wealth. They also didn't, they also had something that was very odd at that time. They had no persecution. Corinth was under no persecution. Thessalonica was under persecution. Berea was under persecution. The church in Rome was under persecution. Everything in, 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 in Turkey was under persecution. Everybody was under persecution except for the church in Corinth. And Corinth had it. Corinth had no persecution. They had a lot of wealth because it was what they call a free state. Slaves who had served their penalty could have a piece of property to start their business. It was a trade route. They had the Isthmian Games, which is sort of like a competitor for the what you know as the Olympic Games. There, the, there's an isthmus that comes out and in Corinth was on one side of it and they would take, instead of going around the horn to get into the Mediterranean, they would literally take ships and unload their cargoes, roll them on logs over to the next side and load the cargoes back and it was quite a lucrative business. Because see, the ships would go out there and if you know anything about sailing, when you come around a point like that, the waves tend to be redneck. Okay? And, and they will try to sink you. And it was safer to pay to have these guys unload your boat, carry it across this little thin stretch of land, put reload your boat and go without you going around the corner and losing the whole thing. They could provide a large sum of money. They had enough to fully supply the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Chapter 8. Verse 20, taking precaution. No one would discredit us in our administration of what? This generous gift. Generous gift, really. Enough to meet the needs of tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I'd say that's a generous gift. Very large. You've got to understand, it's been collected for over a year, every Sunday. Large amount. Over a long period of time. Supply the needs of all the saints. Now then, I want to give you a reminder about that. That is a reminder that God wants the job done to completion. God doesn't want the job done close. When you can take a church and meet the needs of all the saints in one city. God said... Yeah. So they were giving to meet the needs of the saint. That's what verse 12 is. The ministry of the service is not ministry of the service. Remember, it's a spiritual endeavor to bring glory unto God. And I will fully supply the needs of the saints. Okay. Why? Look what it says next. Overflowing through the many thanksgivings to God. There will be overwhelming Why? Because the meeting of the needs. Now remember what I shared with you. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem were like, are these knuckleheads even saved? And all of a sudden, Paul and his entourage come rolling in. This is from Corinth. And every one of you, all of your needs are met. You know what you have to say? I think they're saved. What do you think? Well, that seems awful temporal. Really? Why is it in here? Why is it in here? Why is it worded this way in here? Because Paul was showing the world that the saints and Corinthians were a legitimate church and their actions were speaking louder than many words. 
Many received that gift, and what would they do? Thanks, God. Why? I don't care who you are. That would be awesome. Especially when you look at the history of the Corinthians. Because there's times you read Corinthians and you think, what a bunch of morons. And yet, they step up. All who would receive this gift would thank God. All who didn't need the gift, but would see the brothers and sisters receiving the gift, what would they do? They would thank God. Everybody is going to be thankful to God. Look what the believers in Corinth have done for us. Because his grace had moved so mighty in the Corinthian church that they were thanking God that the Corinthians had this love, this generosity, this sacrifice. And you know what it is? It is a testimony of their confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They looked at it and said, the things of Christ is more important than us. Let's give. This is proof given by this ministry, by this service, by this diakonon. It's obedience to the confession of your faith. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I don't know when it happened. I can't give you a historical date. But we got so heavy into that grace side of Christianity, obedience left the building. We say we love him. We just don't listen to him. Try that in your marriage. That'll work well. I love you. Just shut up. All right. Watch this. Do you see what I mean? And yet, well, I love Jesus more than anything. I just don't want to do anything he says. That'll get you a long ways. Proof of their salvation. If you think about it, how do you know that someone is saved? How do you know that someone is saved? Please don't tell me there is no way. I've listened, I've heard this. Well, you can't know the heart. I can't know the actions of the heart. I've watched this. You can tell if somebody's saved. I'm not a theologian. Just watch them. What's their priorities? Okay? You think about it. Do you know somebody's saved by what they say? Or by what they do? You know what? I was reading somebody, and I can't remember, but it was a quote, because I got it down as a quote. Sayers only are self-deceived. I, listen, I know some people right now who know the Bible better than I'll ever know it. But they ain't saved. Because I see their deeds. And their deeds don't fit. And it's one of those, I have memorized the Bible and I am great at Bible trivia. Okay? But it doesn't accomplish anything. It didn't change the heart. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount, remember those who say? They build their house on sand. Those who do build their house on the rock. James says, don't be just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. 
James says, faith without works is dead. And you want to watch some commentators do some theological yoga, they get around that thing and say, well, that's not somebody who's lost. It's just somebody who's not having any fun. And I was like, no, nah, that ain't what that word dead means. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, you are my real disciples. Jesus says, do you love me? Then you will keep my commandments. The Gentiles in Corinth needed to make a confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd already done it. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead. Okay, what does it mean to confess with your mouth? I've heard people tell me that all you got to say is Jesus is Lord and you're saved. And I said, they're going, really? <laughs> yeah, and they've been on a construction site. <laughs> they all think Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Few other odds and ends. The Corinthians had already made the verbal profession. Now they proved it by their action that they completely made the needs of the Jerusalem saints. They proved the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ by their obedience. And you know what? The saints in Jerusalem thought that was a great idea. And they gave God the glory. See, now, now I want you to think about this text in its wholeness. Just these verses. When the Jerusalem saints see the gift that the Corinthians had given. First and foremost, what do they do? Glorify God. They thank God. They break out into worship because thanksgiving leads you to worship. But when they see the evidence of their salvation, what do they do? They thank God and bring more glory to God. They will glorify God all the more. What is the most wonderful fact you gave is the fact that you belong to God. So you see, this thanksgiving and glory intensifies. It's glorious that you gave. It's more glorious that you're His and that's the reason that you gave. And let's be realistic. You look at the history of the Corinthians, you're like, I don't know, touch and go there. I think that's awesome. Listen, the chaos that was in Corinth was bearing witness to the doubts. It doesn't look like, I mean, they're attacking the Apostle Paul. I mean, even the Jerusalem church accepted Paul. Paul says, because of the proof given by this ministry, this collection of this service, this humble service, this selfless service, this sacrificial service, they, that will bring glory to God because of your obedience. That's amazing to me. Because I've, I've got to be honest with you, I've been reading the Corinthian letters for whoa, a few months. And there's times I look at these people and think, man, what a bunch of boneheads. And then I roll into this text. That obedience to what you confess 
to what you possess, to what you say, is acted out. And brings more glory to God because now of your, the truth of your salvation. That is even more than the gift. Look at verse 13. For the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Liberal, generous, sacrificial, single focused. It's all taken care of. Obedient submission to the word of God is evidence of true confession of Christ as Savior and Lord. You know what? It is. I'll just give you as, as concise as I can right now. It is meaningless. Do you hear what I'm saying? Meaningless to confess him as Savior and Lord if you don't obey him. Okay? I don't care what your excuse is. It's meaningless. Okay? I, I just want you to know that. Now, you don't get nothing out of this message. I don't know about some verb and it's got an Anna and a pos on it. And I don't know. And, and evidently the Corinthians were rich. But I want you to know this. It is meaningless to confess Him as Lord and Savior if you don't obey Him. Through the actions, the Corinthians gave real proof of their salvation. And the saints in Jerusalem were amazed. It goes back to a book I read years ago called Man and His Money. You can tell who a man worships by the way he uses his money. Listen, obedience is true evidence of salvation. If you go back, I'll give you another text. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we've read this many, many times, but you need to listen to it in light of this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's already predetermined. Are you going to sow a little or are you going to sow a lot? Are you going to bring a lot of glory and thanksgiving to God? Through the evidence of your salvation and through the ability to bring others to salvation. He planned it. He saved us to do this. He transformed us to do this. So the Jews are looking for obedience and core salvation even real. Now it is seen. Guess what? They glorify God. They praise God. They worship God. Why? On the basis of what the Corinthians gave. Think about that. Think about that. You get that? These knuckleheads in Corinth were causing the saints, the birth church of the world, to glorify and thank God because of what they did. Tell me God ain't got a sense of humor. They were really saved. They were really changed. And you could see their love. Listen, compare this. These two little verses, 12 and 13. To the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. Just lay it out there. You go through the first six chapters. Oh, gee, what a bunch of... I mean, they're getting drunk at the Lord's table. That's a brilliant idea. Dang on. I, do you th- the sexual immorality? 
just go through the suing each other. Really? And yet, here they step up. We see their love. We see their generosity. They gave liberally. They gave generously. They gave sacrificially. Your contribution. You're sharing with them. What you had, you shared with the saints in Jerusalem. But you know what is amazing about this? Because this is just the way God does things. You think about the the Jewish saints and they're like, you know, we didn't even think you guys were saved. And you met the needs of all that were in need in our church. Now you think about that. Okay. But then he adds this. And to all. And to all. Every Christian who ever reads this and spends the time looking at it will glorify God because of what the Corinthians did. It's a large gift, and it was for everyone. It was generous to all. How generous was it? Look at the thanksgiving and the praises and the glory that went forth to God. How generous was it? It was magnified. The Syrian church, the Turkish church, the church in Macedonia, they would all heard. You know them boneheads down in Corinth? Did you hear what they did? Whoever hears about this, the quote-unquote global church, the people of the church, they will see this generous love. They will see evidence of a true confession of Christ, and they will rejoice and glorify God. You know what? That point is about as simple as it gets. When we give, okay, we now, generously, sacrificially, lovingly, cheerfully, joyfully, out of our heart, it is evidence of a supernatural salvation that has changed their nature of that person. You know what? It causes God to pour back, multiply, and abound to the person who gave. So that we'll give more. All that giving touches lives more and more. Think about it. Just the letters that I read this morning, people. Look at the lives that that 20 bucks you spent for those stars. 13,000 people. 13,000 people were touched by those stars. Do you ever think about that? Think about the people are being... We're getting the gospel to the Taliban? Really? Perhaps you don't want to give money. You would just go do it yourself. I can get you in. I don't know if I can get you out. But I can get you in. How much you want? (laughs) But that is the amazing thing. I think about this church. We have 17 daughter churches around the world. And you know what? They all dwarf us in size. Not talking dwarf us. They've got Sunday school classes that are bigger than this church. Most of them. And yet it is through your faithful giving that God is being glorified around the world. And you know what? You and I ain't going to get see some of this until we get to glory. We all end up there together. 
It raises thanksgiving to God. It touches more lives. The more lives you touch, guess what? That touches more lives. You know, I, I sit there and I look at this guy who's leading the Ukraine. And I'm sitting there going, this guy was a minister. And now all of a sudden he is the president of the country. Now, I'm not sure I'd want to be president of that country. But all of a sudden, boom, there it is. It's right there. It raises many thanks to God. Go back to the end of it. It, it, but is also overflow in verse 12, also overflowing through the many thanksgiving to God. What you're giving? Why you fully supplied the needs. But it also makes every true Christian everywhere. Give thanks everywhere. will know the salvation of the Corinthians. All will know of their love of. And their love for. Jesus Christ. Why? It was more than just a said faith. It was an action of faith. And you know what? God is glorified. And he presses down, overflowing, so that you can do more. We give the church, and it flourishes the gospel as it is preached. That was God's plan. Saints are taught. Kingdom needs are met. It advances and we grow the body. Thanksgiving is multiplied. And guess what? You know what it is? It is the sweet aroma of Christ rising to God. Because these are my people. I have blessed them. They keep giving and I keep multiplying. They give more, I multiply more. We can touch as many as we can in our giving so that as many as possible will thank God. That's what the Corinthians did. How about you? Up for the task? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Corinthians. Uh, Father, as I look through this, I stand in awe of what uh, you did through these people. Father, I thank God for what you're doing through these people. Father, your gospel is going out. It is having an impact. Father, yes, I wish it was more. But Father, probably no more than you wish. Father, I pray that each and every one of us will test your, you and your promises. Father, grow our faith that we may understand that everything we've got, you gave. And Father, you will multiply as long as we start looking for your deeds, your works to walk in, and we'll be overwhelmed by what you do. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you've shown me the changed hearts of the Corinthians. And Father, I think about it as the praising I gave unto you this week as I was drawing this to a conclusion. I stood in awe of the glory of God, even in the church in Corinth. Wow. Father, help us. Help us to be as the Corinthians. Restored in our relationship, walking worthy, and giving in such a way that tens of thousands of saints will praise, glorify, and thank you for your abundant grace in our lives. To your glory and praise. In Christ's name. Amen.